0: Today on the Kuehl Podcast, big individual college hockey awards being handed out this weekend. Barbanov is moving from the Red Square to Nathan Phillips Square in North Dakota to be the host of the NHL's regular season. Why? We'll talk about that and more on this episode of the Kuehl Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Kewl Podcast. I am your host today, once again, the insider to the insiders, Tyler Kewl, live from the quarantine studio, or better known as the studio that we usually record in, you know, my office and stuff. Yes, we are back for another episode in isolation with nothing. Well, there is news to talk about, but no actual action. Unfortunately, I'm not going to really go down to the point where I'm going to be analyzing Twitch stream games, even though there's plenty of those around the bend and such. So we'll just ignore that and let someone else go into that. But we have a lot to talk about today, though. If you want to get involved in this week's episode of The Keel Podcast, tweet us and follow us on Twitter at The Podcast. Use the hashtag The Podcast, hashtag TKP to tell us what you think about What's going on in the world? How is everyone doing? Is everyone doing good this week? I hope so, because, you know, it's it's getting lonely. Oh, my goodness. It's not getting lonely at all over here. I see my wife every second of every day, which is great. Except when we watch Friends the entire time, and then it gets old. Really, really fast. However, we did just watch the four Pierce Brosnan 007 films, the James Bond movies, which I remember... Well, I remembered watching a little bit of Goldeneye, and I do remember Die Another Day. Die Another Day was the, in fact, I think Goldeneye came out after I was born. So all of Pierce Brosnan's films came out after I was born. However, the first one that I ever watched was Die Another Day. And the the movie itself is, excuse me, it's interesting because I love James Bond. I love the classics, I like the Daniel Craig ones, and Pierce Brosnan, just because of his kind of machismo that he has, are great movies as well. The best one, of course, is GoldenEye, but Die Another Day was a very CGI-filled movie, and you could tell it was made in 2001, or released in 2001 at least, but getting to watch GoldenEye again was really good, because I... I convinced Kelly, cause we didn't know, because we were sh- just scrolling through Netflix. And right now on Netflix, they have all the Pierce Brosnan ones. And on Prime, they have the, uh, the, Dal- the-, the Dalton ones, the Roger Moore, and the Sean Connery ones, all free with Amazon Prime. The Daniel Craig ones, we had to rent, because, well, Kelly likes Daniel Craig. I'm trying to get her to watch one of the classic ones. She works tonight, so maybe tomorrow night. Tomorrow night, I may get her to get Goldfinger going. Or Live and Let Die or from Russia with love for some reason, she just looks at all the titles and wonders why there was one called Octopussy. And I said, guess what, Kelly, the seventies, wonderful time for movies. Of course there was Thunderball and I can go into list of all the movies. Of course the first one, Dr. No, I do want to watch that one just because of like the intro to James Bond is so casual, but so mysterious for, I'm not, and that's not a spoiler at all. Just the way they introduce it was kind of interesting. So, that said, go, I was able to convince her. Like, hey, watch Goldeneye. I'm like, like what Goldeneye? I'm like, that's. I'm like, oh yeah, James Bond movie. She's like, okay, you know, what's it about? And I'm like, I'll be honest, I don't know, but I can tell you who the bad guy is. She's like, who's the bad guy? The bad guy from National Treasure. And she's like, oh, okay. And I just, and I remember when she said okay, I just double clicked on the Netflix and away it went, and we watched it. Then we, the next night we watched. Tomorrow is not, or, uh, tomorrow never dies. And then, then we end up watching in order that night. We watched all the last three. We watched Tomorrow Never Dies, Enough, and then Die Another Day. And it's funny to know that, like, Madonna's Die Another Day is one of the best Bond themes. At least some people say so, even though it's kind of funny, like, how poppy it is. But then we watched Casino Royale last night, and I had not watched Casino Royale. It came out on DVD back in 06. And I had not seen it since then. Probably saw the first half hour of it, and I fell asleep. I think it was because we used to do these family movie nights where one of two things would happen: either mom and dad would, so my brother, my mom and dad, we'd all sit there and watch a movie, have dinner on our awesome wooden TV trays that we would have. You know, you know, you guys. Okay, anyone who's watched Matilda, you know, when they sit around the TV all the time and they're sitting on those like those metal TV trays. Well, we had wooden ones because we were classy. No, but and we used and we watched Casino Royale. And one of two things that would happen on these movie nights was either my brother and I fell asleep and mom and dad finished the movie, or mom and dad fell asleep and Alex and I would finish the movie. So that was the night that Alex and I would fall asleep and we end up waking up at the very end of course. So I will say this though. The only time that I was ever the sole one that made it through an entire movie and I'm proud to have said this was Fantasia 2000. Yes. I when I was six years old, mind you, ADD Tyler, who was six years old, was able to stay locked in, focused enough on Fantasia 2000, not the original, not the classic one, but Fantasia 2000, and I was able to focus on it the entire time and watch the whole thing through. Mom, dad, Alex all fell asleep. I felt like I accomplished something that night, but that was just me. But, yeah, so we're I'm trying to convince her to watch one of the classic James Bond films. But even though I do want to see Skyfall, because out of all the Daniel Craig ones that have come out, they say Skyfall is the best one. And we just watched Quantum of Solace last night, too, along with Casino Royale. Preferably I say Casino Royale is better. Maybe it's because the theme, because it's Chris Cornell, and Chris Cornell is the man. And, of course, rest in peace, Mr. Cornell. He is one... Of my favorite artist. Even though Black Hole Sun's a very overrated song. I said it. All you Soundgarden fans at me. Tell me how you feel. So some breaking news from today. And some actually very sad news. Start off the show with today. Coming out of Edmonton Oilers camp. Colby Cave. Who played for both the Oilers and the Condors. The last couple of seasons. Had to be placed in a medically induced coma. Due to a brain bleed. There's really no more details other than that as of right now, but he is currently in. It's currently being held. He's been placed in critical in the critical care unit at Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto. So obviously let's all make sure we have him and his wife Emily in his in our thoughts and prayers here tonight. But obviously just a crazy, crazy time for, for everyone here. And obviously nothing more unfortunate than having me placed in that. And I'd love to have Kelly on in that one, but I don't know how much into neuro she is and all that. So obviously just once again, keep Colby and his wife on your thoughts and prayers. And hopefully he's able to fight through this. Cause obviously it's a very, very probably emotional time for the cave family. And also of course yesterday, April the sixth, was the two year anniversary of the Humboldt Broncos bus crash and and I still can know exactly I remember that day just very I'm gonna put this very just very oddly and it's 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 one of those where were you now deals and I can vividly remember exactly what, where I was, what I was doing, and everything about it is just shocking to still remember. I It happened on April the 6th. I didn't find out until the next morning because I woke up and I used to do 4 a.m. shifts at the job I was working at on Saturdays. Trust me, it sucked, but I woke up that Saturday morning and I turned on Steve Dangle Podcast because they would always record and I'd watch, listen to it the next morning while I was having breakfast on my way to work, and they start off with Steve talking about two things: Jonathan Petrie passing away, and of course, his anniversary of his passing was earlier this week as well. And then he talked about a story coming out of Humboldt of a tragic bus crash resulting in their from their junior A hockey team. So immediately, I stop listening to the episode. I jump on Twitter. And it, sorry, I still get a little, little kind of choked up about it because it's just, yes, I I admit to everyone that I always tell this to no, I had no connections with anyone from the team. But just knowing how those trips are, those long bus trips overnight on the way to a game and, it's still tough to know that, you know, we lost sixteen good old good old boys on that and twenty nine were total injured and it's just it's rough for many reasons because it's I don't it just hits home. Because if you ever played hockey growing up, whether it be travel hockey, high school hockey, junior hockey, college, pro, whatever, you know how those trips are just those bus trips are You know, you you almost look forward to those. You know, at least I always did. I loved riding the bus and just kind of relaxing and getting take a nap and hanging out with the boys and stuff. And it's, I still look back on that and just, I I still remember the first game, that first game the next season, and they said they were going to play and TSN was going to cover it. I put it on the big screen at home and just crying the entire pregame. And Kelly called me too. I remember Kelly was going to work. And she called me on her way. Because when we didn't use, before we lived together, she would do that. She'd give me a call and tell me she's on her way to work. And, you know, I tell her I love her, have fun at work, blah, blah, blah. And I just remember she calls me and I'm just in just this puddle of tears. And she's like, are you okay? What happened? I'm like, I'm watching the Humboldt Broncos game. And it wasn't even the game yet. I was just sitting there just crying. She's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, "I, it just, every emotion poured out of me because you just felt like, it was more than a game, and I, I still can't understand why I just started bawling my eyes out, because it was an emotional moment, remembering, you know, everyone that unfortunately didn't make it, and, of course, the whole saga in itself is tragic enough, but watching the former players come back and sit there on the ice during the moment of silence and watching them break, it it was a rough game, and thankfully it was a good hockey game, too. I believe they lost to win I think it was like two, one or three. It was a very close game, very good hockey game, but that was still rough. And obviously I, I made sure I'd post something yesterday because it's, it is still a day that none of us should forget. None of us should ever, you know, we should all look back and the same thing. You know, how people look back at the, you know, the swift current Broncos tragedy back in the eighties. I mean, the same way you know everyone remembers every year where they were when they heard that unfortunate phone call and back then in the 80s you had to learn through newspaper you had to learn through watching the news and today you know today's age we were able to find out everything so fast through social media about Humboldt and that's why I think made it oh that's why I think made it just a little bit more heart-wrenching it's because literally I'm sitting there on Twitter just refreshing my feed the entire time and trying to figure out what happened and the way it just rippled through the entire hockey community from the NHL all the way down to, you know, novice, you know, that's, it's how it was. And it's just, it's still, I I don't, I don't know if anyone, everyone will ever get over it. I think every time, every round this time, every year comes around, I think everyone will stop and think about it. And which is the best way to do it? Because you should remember, you know, everyone that was there, everything that was a part of it, and it's still a very, you know, I, I don't want, I never want to say it's a, I mean, it is definitely a sore subject to talk about, but it's good to remember, you know, that's that's the be- biggest thing about that is to remember, remember the humble Broncos sticks out for humble all the time. And on to more news, hopefully, I guess, somewhat happier news, if you will. And going back to Toronto, back to the 6-416 area code, Alex Barbanov, Barbanov, excuse me. Alex Barbanov signs with the Toronto Maple Leafs. One-year deal, $925,000 contract, the exact same deal that Ilya Mikheyev was given when he signed on before the 2019-2020 season. And Barbanov, we talked about him a couple of weeks ago on the show. A player that everyone seems to want. Everyone's like, "Oh, I mean, I think the report came out that over 20 teams wanted to talk to him. That 20 teams were interested in Barbanov." And it's you know it's odd because I mean, not everyone's gonna throw like five million dollars at a you know an unproven KHLer. You know, granted, yes, he played on a you know pretty good World Junior team back in 2014 for Russia, but. You know, he, and also he won the gold medal with the Olympic Athletes of Russia back in 2018. But, you know, it's it's hard to, for some players to make that adjustment coming over. We've seen a lot of guys that have flopped and coming overseas here in North America. And that's why I believe, you know, maybe Barbanev wasn't being given close to a million like the Leafs were willing to give him. You know, for especially for a one-year contract. A lot of people were probably looking at saying, hey, you know, we'll give you a shot. Here's a minimum wage you know, 700K two-way deal. No, he wants a one-year, one-way deal. And, you know, a very, I, I if you ask me, a very simple contract. Correction, I believe it actually is two-way. A two-way contract for Alexander Barbanov. Yes, two-way. If I'm looking at this right. I'm just jumping on my good old cap friendly. They have him listed with the non-rostered forward. So, They have him listed as one of the Marlies. So maybe that is a possible two-way contract. Regardless, very simple, very simple deal. Nothing awful about it and cheap as well. And he's going to be a player that is going to be a depth center or depth forward, excuse me. He'll play on the back and he is a winger and he is, I believe he's left-handed if I'm not mistaken. Yes, he's a left-handed, but can play both wings Has a decent amount of hands, good skill set. You know, it's hard to judge speed on international ice because the ice surface is so big. But, you know, he he shows quickness, has a good hard drive. He's only 25 years old. He'll be 26. Okay, he's 25 right now, but he'll be turning 26 this summer in June. So he'll definitely have, you know, a little bit of age to him, a little bit of, I guess, some veteran status in terms of, the fact that he's played in the KHL for, I believe, the last five or so years. So he's been playing a very high level of pro hockey for a certain amount of time. So he's not going to come in as if he's never played against men. So that's the good part if you're a Leafs fan or a Leafs management. Sheldon Keefe already said in a conference call with media today how that he will be a big, a big part of the Leafs next season. And that's big words coming out of Sheldon Keefe. Saying how, hey, I want him here, and he's going to be here. You know, he, it's kind of similar to how, you know, when Mike Babcock first gave the opportunity to Ilya Mikheyev. Granted, it was sparing at first, but you saw early on that Mikheyev was a hardworking player, may have had a good skill set over there, but was able to adjust his game to play on the North American ice. I presume, at least the Leafs are presuming, that Barbanov's going to do the same thing. Obviously, yes, it's a risk. But not an expensive risk. It's only nine hundred twenty-five k. If they gave him, like I said, four million dollars, you're right. That'd be a little bit of a stretch. And he better do well, or else, guess what? Kyle Dubas's head will be in the gun, or will be in a vice, because everyone just saw already, you know, the way this season has gone for the Leafs before the pause, it was all up and down, and you weren't quite sure if they were ever going to be good. Thanks to the general manager's decision making. So as of right now. That leaves the Toronto Maple Leafs with around a little over $7 million next season in cap space as of right now with a contract size of, they believe they say, 16, or they have 33 players, standard player contracts. Obviously, a lot of one-year deals signed for a bunch of minor leaguers, which include, but not limited to, you know, you have guys like Jeremy Bracco, who's going to be an RFA Matt Larito is gonna be a UFA, Pontus Aberg, who has performed very well for the Marlies is an RFA as well. You also have Kevin Gravel, who's also a UFA, a guy they acquired earlier on, and Casimir Kaskuswell, who is a group six unrestricted free agent. He's making six seventy-five down. Well, he's six seventy-five with the Leafs. His actual minor's salary is, if I can think and scroll over, making a hundred grand down with the Marlies. Not a bad chunk of change for an AHL goaltender. But, obviously, the big names up with the big club they have to worry about signing. Kyle Clifford and Jason Spezza are the UFAs up front. With Cody Cece being UFA, he's probably going to be allowed to walk. But the big one, of course, on the back end, in terms of unrestricted free agents, is Tyson Berry. Now, there's been talks that there have been whispers back and forth, and should the Leafs look at signing Tyson Berry? Yes, he has had a roller coaster season, to say the least. Along have the Leafs. And Tyson Berry, if the thing is about him, is that everyone looks at his mistakes in the defensive zone, and that's where I always like to come out and say, well, yes, but they weren't signing him to be a defensive defenseman. They were hoping Cody Cece could do that, but guess what, guys? He hasn't really done that that well this year. Anyways, back to my point. Barry is an offensive weapon. The point of Tyson Barry is for him to produce in the opposition's end. If he does not, then yes, his worth goes out the door. 2.75 is his current contract, that 2.75 million, that is, is his current contract that he is under. There are whispers that coming into this season, he would be worth $8 million after this year. His stock, though, personally asking, you could probably ask some other very notable people in the game around the league that that stock has gone down quite considerably. You're looking at about a $6 million contract. Now that, with the amount of space they have coming up next season, may be a little too much. Now, yes, they do have some LTIR they can use because, don't forget, folks, David Clarkson, Nathan Horton, their contracts both come off the books this season. They are both going to be off the books, so the LTIR room will open up for the Toronto Maple Leafs problem with that, though, is that they really don't have anyone else they have to worry about placing an LTIR. Now, yes, as of right now, McCabe and Andreas Janssen are both on LTIR at the end, at the pause, at least, because McCabe, remember, broke his foot. Janssen got hurt as well, so not good times for those two. But the Leafs are not going to be able to get themselves out of trouble with picking up LTIR, unless they try to do something with the deal with the Arizona Coyotes, who have a lot of LTIR still in their bank. So it's going to be tough to t- see what they do if they want to go up to Tyson Berry. I mean, yes, you have a player like Timothy Lilligren on the back end that's, you know, improving, but he's not turning into a superstar. I mean, you have other defensemen down there that they're hoping that kind of turn around. They just signed. You know, they just signed Philip Crawl, Philip excuse me, to a three-year contract, a little over $810,000. They also have Matt Howell down there. He's a guy that was very highly regarded coming out of Sioux. Kevin Gravel, I don't know if he'll ever get a chance. Yes, Lindgren has looked good at times. You know, they're going to have to look about getting younger defensemen if they can't sign Tyson Barry to a reasonable contract that leaves him space for other players. Because obviously, an RFA... Travis Dermott, they're going to have to look at re-signing him. They also have Freddie Goche coming up at the end of this year, and right now he's at the end of his 675 grand contract, which will legally have to go up because that's not the minimum anymore. They also have Dennis Mulligan, who they probably could, you know, I don't know if they want to trade or they'd have to do some kind of deal to it. He is arbitration eligible. Is Malagan? He came over in the Florida Panthers trade, and as you know, he had his moments. He wasn't, a, you know a mind-bogglingly great player, but he wasn't, you know, one that you would just toss off to the site for nothing, so we'll see what Dubas does with him. Jason Spezza, of course, who's had an incredible bounce back year by his standards at playing at minimum wage, one-year deal, playing pretty much fourth-line minutes the entire time. So far this season, at least at the pause, was at 25 points in 58 games, and like I said, at the on the fourth line, not bad numbers at all, so... Obviously, the Leafs have to make a decision on him, and Jason Spezza, of course, uh, wants to. Obviously, probably wants to play a little bit more, and kind of seeing how he kind of was able to turn things around with the lesser role is going to probably want a little bit of a pay raise. But the question is, how much will the Leafs be able to pay him? That is the question. We'll see. Have to wait for the off season for that for any news to come from that. But obviously, the off season may already be here. However. Not so sure about that, are we, though? Here's the thing, guys. The NHL may come back. Now, despite me and others that we've talked to here on the show believing that it shouldn't happen, it won't happen, it's not feasible for it to happen. It may actually happen here, guys. According to Elliot Friedman, one of his recent articles this past week, the NHL has looked at some areas and some Cities, some arenas to possibly hold the rest of the regular season inside one area. One of the, I guess, more talked about places, there have been places like Manchester, New Hampshire, a couple of smaller ECHL cities or smaller college towns. But one that's really come up quite a bit, though, is Grand Forks, North Dakota. Now, I'm not quite sure how that would work. I'm not, excuse me, I know how it would work, but The league apparently, according to Friedman, has tried to find a way to get all the teams to come play all their games inside one barn. We're talking about a massive tournament inside one arena, or at least one type of tournament setup. You know, when you go to a rink, you know, go to a Friday-Saturday tournament or a Friday-Saturday-Sunday tournament, you know, you go over to the greater Detroit area or outside Chicago or I don't know, take your pick, you know, go somewhere, go to, like, Mississauga and have 12 teams in one division all play each other on two separate rinks. Now, obviously, Ralph Engelstad Arena, where the North Dakota Fighting Hawks play, there's only one sheet of ice, so you'd be having 31 NHL teams all playing on one sheet of ice. Now, how many games they play, I don't know. Are they just planning on hosting the playoffs? I'm not sure. But it'd be very interesting because think of it this way. The ice will get torn to shreds with NHLers skating on it every day. Anyone who's ever been able or had the opportunity to go to an NHL training camp, tell me how good the ice is by day five or day three. You know, I remember going to Traverse City a couple of times, center ice up in Traverse City, to watch the Red Wings training camp when I was a kid. And they would scrimmage about... 10 a.m., 11 a.m. They also have practice as well after that. Sometimes they practice and they'd scrimmage. But imagine having 40 professional hockey players on two sheets of ice for part near the entire day for a six-hour span. That ice was torn to shreds. I'm pretty sure I saw cracks in the ice because you have all these professional hockey players who... Are fan who have a way above average edge work who have very strong strides. And now, nowadays the players are stronger than they used to be. This is back in like before the lockout, before the year long lockout in 0405. So when I guess hockey players were strong, but they weren't, I don't want to say fit, but you know what I'm saying? They weren't full scale athletes. I it's, it's hard to say. they were athletes then, but it's a different game. Now, if you've been around the game for 30 years, you, pretty much know the difference. You know what I'm talking about when I say players are stronger, faster, and a lot more athletic than they were back in the days of Steve Eizerman and Sergei Fedorov. and Heck, you go back into you know the 80s when, oh yeah, Gretzky's putting up 200 points. Well, yeah, because nobody could keep up with him for 60 minutes in a game. Nobody could keep up with the high-flying players because everyone was faster. They were much more fit. They were younger. And everyone's older and trying to hook and grab them, And it's impossible when you have Dave Semenko clobbering him upside the head for touching Gretzky. Now let me step off this pedestal, and we'll go back to this. I'm interested to see what the actual plan is. They Elliot Freeman didn't go too much into detail, but there was talks about it. And I'm intrigued of how they do this. Because obviously, yes, Grand Forks has shown that they've been able to host big events. They hosted the 2005 World Junior Championships. They had, held, I believe, the 2016 under-18s, if I'm not mistaken. So they've done it before. They can hold tournaments. But this is the NHL, and if the NHL has any idea about playing the rest of the regular season when a lot of teams still have 14 games left, do 14 times 31, guys. Pretty big number. I'm trying to think off the top of my head now. 14 times 30. Uh, I'm not going to even bother with it because it's going to take too much time. But don't you have a phone? Shut up. I want to continue on here. Is it worth it, though? Is it still worth getting all these players to come back from... Because some players went back home. Some players went back overseas. All right? What are they going to do? Come back over? And now you're going to have to worry about testing them for a possible coronavirus? This is more than just, let's get this done. Now, I know everyone, you know, the famous saying is quality over quantity. Obviously, it's a slightly different context here. Is it worth just jamming the season in? just so we have a winner. And, I, and I'm going to use an example here, and of course some hockey fans may be deterred by this, but WrestleMania was still went on this past weekend. It was a different setup. It was in front of an empty arena at their performance center. There was no fans, just the wrestlers, commentators, and camera crew, and all the other staff that works for WWE. And they had a two-day event. They did it a little differently this year. Two nights, and apparently... And I'm going to have to get WWE Network now to watch it because I still follow a lot of good people that cover wrestling and stuff like that. Apparently, it was crazy awesome and fun to watch. So I'm going to have to do that. So maybe, maybe, if you're able to get it done and it's feasible and it's worth it, go for it. My problem is, though, is that they're going to try this because here's the thing. They were able to completely isolate. Because don't forget, WrestleMania had maybe What? 50 people there. Let's say 50. I'm going to go with a little bit of a stretch here because you have two days. You have all your wrestlers, and I believe they filmed a lot of this prior to because they had the the Firefly match between Bray Wyatt and John Cena, and the Undertaker versus AJ Styles Boneyard match. There was a lot of filming involved in that. It was a lot of pretty. It looked pretty much like the for any of you old Attitude Era fans, the empty arena match between Mankind and The Rock in '99 in the halftime of Super Bowl 33, halftime heats, they called it. If you guys remember that, then yes, it was kind of like that. They filmed it all prior to because, well, you had to make sure it looked good. So that's how they were able to pull it off that way. They did it all, a lot of the filming in advance. And there's talks for wrestling that their, Mon- their Raw and their SmackDown shows are going to be filmed on Friday in advance. They're going to film their two-hour shows in a one-day span. They're trying to cut back on it. Here's the difference between that and hockey, wrestling. You can probably keep twenty-five people in the building, test them all the time, keep them away from each other. If you're planning on putting thirty-one hockey teams inside one arena in one city, let's do the math, ladies and gentlemen. Twenty-three teams are twenty-three players are allowed to dress for an NHL team. Each team has three coaches. Most of them do. Some head coaches. Head coach. Into assistant slash associate coaches, and you have trainers. You have your head equipment trainer. You're in your two assistants. So that's six people behind the bench per se. Now you could be able, you could probably be able to cut that down a little bit if you need to. Like the GM likes to be there as well. Sometimes the vice, or the vice, the assistant general manager. Sometimes you have all the other marketing people there. Now those you could probably cut. I grant yes, but then you have the players themselves. So you have 46 players, say. And then you may have a couple of scratches, because obviously players can get hurt during this little shebang, because obviously you're going to jam all these games in, pretty much have players go or game or teams play back to back, take it off, go back to back. If you want to jam it in this time frame, you're going to have to do that. So players will get hurt. Players will get tired. So you have to bring scratches in. So say a team has five or six scratches, because obviously the AHL is not going on right now. So you're looking at about, let's just give or take 27 to 30 players per team. You're looking at close to 90 some odd players. All right. Then you have the coaching staff and all that. You are looking at jamming, and you're going to have, what, five games a day, give or take? I mean, you're going to have to have more. It's it's just not safe at this time to try to put all these people inside one arena. But, Tyler, it's going to be an empty arena with no fans. Okay. And I'm sorry, but I love how North Dakota's facilities are. Ralph Engelsand Arena is a great arena. But you're telling me that you're going to put teams rotating in and out of these locker rooms all the time, each day for probably two months? And you're going to tell me in a, where teams have to make sure their their equipment is clean and dry all the time? Because wet equipment does not end well. Jamie, ask Jamie McLennan. He'll tell you all about what it's like to have soggy wet equipment. He he got sick. Do he got sick from that? All right, just remember that. And you're gonna have all these teams coming in and all these locker rooms, and you don't know who hasn't, who doesn't. That's the thing about this. Is why would you risk it? If you really, really wanted to do something like this, you put it in a in an arena or a facility that has like six rinks, like they have up in Buffalo, or they have in. I think there's a place where they're having the ACHA National Tournament next year, where there's six rinks inside this facility up near Boston, Massachusetts. That'd be okay. Why? Because you could keep everyone separate, for the most part. Just close off the rink to the public, like they've done now, and then just have it in one stinking arena. Guess what? I think that place has maybe six locker rooms, maybe, including an official's room. You're asking for something bad to happen. Honestly, what are you going to do? Have the players just change in the stands? Yeah, because that'll look good. On the league. If you're not going to do it right. If it's not going to be good. If you're going to put these players lives in danger. It's not worth it. I get it. You want to have a season. The CFL just announced today. That there's not a chance. That their season will start by July. It's April. The CFL has already said. By three months time. They're not going to be able to pull it off. And this is a league that has. Nine teams. They have a better chance of keeping people away from each other than the NHL does. Yet, they decide, no, not a chance. And that is good. It is good to keep it that way, because you don't need to push this. This is not something, and I've said it before, there may not be a Major League Baseball season. There may not be a chance of having baseball at all in 2020. And I, I get it. People want to play. Players want to get paid. I understand that. Here's the problem. Why would you risk lives just because to play a game? I love hockey. I, I. It's my first love. I partner worship it. It's what I do. It's what I've known my entire life. Yet, I understand why there is not A Frozen 4 this weekend for the NCAA. I understand why the Memorial Cup was canceled. I understand why the NHL went on pause. Because this is a pandemic that we should not take lightly. The fact that the NHL even has considered to put 31 hockey teams in one city, in one arena, that close to each other, is an awful idea. Even if you just cut it to the playoffs, and just have 16 teams play three-game series, you're still putting a lot of players' lives at risk here. You don't know how many players were near the folks from the Ottawa Senators that had COVID. You don't know if anyone came in contact with any of those people. You don't know all the people that... I mean, who knows who's anyone's had in Edmonton, who's had it in Anaheim, in California, where it's at its peak, partner. Why would you do that? I, 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 I understand, yes, folks, you... You're sick and tired of hearing people talk about the coronavirus. Give us some good news. Give us some good news. Well, when the NHL comes out and says something stupid, like they're actually going to keep the season going because no one else is going to play, so what? we should definitely play because we'll have the spotlight on us. Talk about wrestling and try to keep it separate. That's the most Vince McMahon thing I've ever heard in my life. Why would you want to continue the season? I get the players want to. That's great. But just because they're healthy doesn't mean they'll stay that way. Yes, the big-name players, let's play. Connor McDavid, let's play. Sidney Crosby, let's play. Ovechkin, love to play. Oh, that's great. That is great. They love to play. But I'm sure they'd like to live to tell about it, right? Right. So why in the world will the NHL consistently try to come up with stupid scenarios on how they could continue the 2020 season to simply award one championship? One championship that nobody will care about. In 100 years, you want to know why the only reason why they'll know is because, hey, remember that one time when they had the tournament inside a stinking college barn? Yeah, remember that. That was interesting. Great, that was interesting, but guess what may happen out of it? You may be looking at it at a negative context because somebody somehow will have a Joe Hall syndrome and die because of this. And then the NHL will be like, well, this was a bad idea. I'm just saying, will it really take someone to be put in that much danger, something actually to happen to somebody, for the NHL to smarten up. No? No, of course not. Because why would, why would they do that? Why would they think with their brains when they can make money? When they can make money. I get it. This is a business. But it's also people's lives. Why would we risk that? Because you can't make money We don't have any people. Just saying. All right, moving on from that Schmeel. This weekend, when the Frozen Four was supposed to happen, college hockey was going to award out a bunch of individual awards this weekend. But they're still going to do that, though, because obviously, just because they can't award a national champion, does not mean they can't award some of the best in the NCAA. A couple of the big awards that are being handed out are the Mike Richter Award for Best Goaltender, as well as the Holby Baker Award, given to the best college hockey player of the season. We'll start off with the Mike Richter Award because why not start with the goaltenders first? They go on the ice first. Let's talk about the goaltenders first. A couple of really good goaltenders to talk about today. The first goaltender we're going to talk about, Matthew Golida from the Cornell University Big Red. He has had himself an outstanding season, as have the entire Big Red have. The junior netminder this season went 23-2-4 with a 1-5-6 goals against average, a 9 one save percentage, and five shutouts. He's the only goaltender in this year of the of this year's nominees, at least, to have been nominated for the award before. Matthew Golida was also nominated back in 2018, back when he was a freshman, when his numbers were mind-boggling. I think he had a 1.51 goals against average and a 934 save percentage. If I'm not mistaken, he was absolutely phenomenal. And for the Cornell Big Red. And that was at a time when Cornell really wasn't, I don't want to say not that good, but they were. the team in front of them was not nearly as good as they are this season. And he had a nine-three nine 9 save percentage, excuse me, back in 2017-2018 with nine shutouts that season. He was nominated for it. And unfortunately, did not win. Took a little bit of a dip last year as well as the rest of the Big Red did. But this season, though, incredible year. He himself has really put himself as an opportunity to be a number one goaltender. And that's why Cornell, for a lot of this season, towards the end here, was the number one team in the nation. He started every game for the Big Red, had a 10-game win streak to start the year, and a nine-game win streak to end the season. Now, let's do the math, folks. He's played in 29 games, and he won 19 of them at the begin between the beginning and the end of the season. So if you're asking, yes, Christmas was not a good time for Cornell. But other than that, though, he's he's looked really good. Like I mean, he was nominated before, and watching him, he's he gets and he uses his size to advantage. He gets a little a little out there sometimes in positioning, but for the most part, very solid moving goaltender. And despite being undrafted, he may be a guy that in a couple of years may be getting picked up by a team if he's able to have a good senior season or if the money comes to him after this year, because a goaltender like him, you know, you don't have come around too often and Look at all the past Mike Richter Award winners that have been able to make it through or make it to the high ranks of professional hockey. I mean, the first ever winner was Connor Hellebuck back when he was at UMass Lowell. You had Zane McIntyre, who has had himself not the greatest career in pro hockey. He's been up and down Team Providence in Boston, but he's made his, you know, his name through the pro ranks. Thatcher Demko, current Vancouver Canucks goaltender, won it with Boston College in 2016. Cam Johnson and Charlie Lindgren were finalists that year. Charlie Lindgren, the wrong-handed catching goaltender out of St. Cloud State. And you've had you know Cal Peterson, who's had his moments with the LA Kings. I mean, Kale Morris, who's who, granted, has not made it up to the higher ranks quite yet, but has a lot of promise. Caden Primo, a draft pick out of Northeastern, he won it last year. Be expecting to hear his name soon. So there have been a lot of good goaltenders who have shown that they – can win it, win the award, and then take it up to the pro ranks. This season, like I said, Goliath has an opportunity to do it. Another goaltender. Speaking of Caden Primo, a former U.S. national development prospect. How about Spencer Knight, the freshman from Boston College, who was drafted this past summer, back in 2019, first-round pick of the Florida Panthers, 13th overall. If I'm not mistaken, he was the highest-picked goaltender in last year's draft. Out of the U.S. National Development. Obviously, this was a very big class for the U.S. NTDP in terms of high draft picks, including guys like Cole Caulfield, obviously Jack Hughes, just to name a couple. But he himself had another great year. 23-8-2 was his record in the 33 games he played. 197 goals against average and a nine-three-one save percentage with five shutouts as well. 23 wins tied with Galeida for second in the country in wins. His save percentage and goals against average were Knights were tied for eighth in the country in this five shutouts, along with Matthew Golida, tied for second in the country. And he didn't have a great start to the year either, did Spencer Knight. Started off 2-3-1 and one on the year. However, right after that, towards the middle of October through November, he went on a nine-game win streak and also had an eight-game win streak later on in January. And he's a kind of a goaltender that is very athletic if you watch him. He can be a joy to watch. However, sometimes it gets a little too rattled. It kind of comes back to bite him. And, you know, he was a goaltender that was very highly regarded coming up through the under-18 ranks and the U-16 ranks, and he's continued that into Boston College. And it would have been interesting to see how the Eagles did in the Hockey East Tournament because they were going to be going up against a couple of pretty good hockey teams, including I think Boston University was going to be a good team to come out of there. And I know Maine, we'll talk about their guy here in just a minute. There are going to be some tough teams, and I don't know maybe if Spencer Knight could have dragged the Eagles to not just a tournament bid, but a possible frozen four bid out of the Hockey East. And very talented goaltender, and we'll see if he gets his name called on Saturday. One of the probably the underdog of the five nominees for the Mike Richter Award is Strauss Mann out of Michigan, the sophomore netminder. Played on a Michigan team that started off the year incredibly below 500. I believe I think they were the only team that was finished that started off the season in the Big Ten Conference below 400. They were sick. He went 16-13 and four to Straussman. And I remember going into the GLI. I provided a little bit of coverage for the hockey writers on it. And I remember just how Michigan was not supposed to do well. You know, I know Ferris State was there, and they were kind of below the radar as well, but they had Michigan State, who was playing hot, and Michigan Tech, who was on a tear with a couple of really good goaltenders and a really good couple of scorers. But Michigan went in there, and Straussman played really well against Ferris, able to get them to the championship game, and had a pretty good game in the GLI championship. Unfortunately, they weren't able to pull it off. Logan Pietela decided to play hero for the Michigan Tech Huskies, but Strauss Mann just was ho hum the entire season. Was one of the best goaltenders in the Big Ten Conference. Had a 1.97 goals against average, with tied with Spencer Knight. Was tied for eighth in the country. Had a 9.36 save percentage, which was sixth in the NCAA, and four shutouts, which was tied for seventh. And this was a Michigan team for the longest time could not score goals, and he was there every single time. And he's another undrafted goaltender, and he had a. A lot of work put on him this year. He finished 5th in the NCAA in saves with 942 this year. And we'll get to the guy here in just a minute who had the most saves, but he was just outstanding from game one onward. He always gave the big blue a chance to win. And the, that just shows the testament why he's being a nominated. I don't know if – I don't think he'll win, but just the fact that he's even nominated for the award should be in a testament to how good he was and how he was able to help Michigan go from last in the Big Ten Conference to having home ice advantage in the first round of the tournament. That itself is huge, and that just shows you how important goaltending is, especially in a wide-open offensive league that is the Big Ten Conference. My favorite to win the Mike Richter Award this year comes out of Minnesota State. You guys remember when we had Harrison Watt on the show a couple weeks ago talking about the nominees for the Hobie Baker Award. Dryden McKay was one of the top ten the final 10, excuse me, nominees, and it's der- deservedly so. A sophomore netminder, number three, Minnesota State Mavericks, he went 28-4-2 with a 1.30 goals against average, a 9 4 save percentage, and 10 shutouts. 10 shutouts. That is first in each of those four categories in the NCAA, in the WCHA, NCAA. Part near probably the best goaltender in North America, give or take. I'd like, I mean, it's incredible. And he's another undrafted goaltender as well. He had two eight game win streaks, including a 10 game win streak that went from the middle of November to the Christmas break. He was outstanding the entire way through the season this year, and Minnesota State was undoubtedly the favorite to win the WCHA championship this year after winning the regular season championship. They were already going to be a team that was going to give an automatic bid in the tournament. And if they were able to keep their, you know, their mind, their P's and Q's and keep everything in order, they could have probably been in Detroit coming up this weekend. Had they were able, had the season continued onward because of the play of not just Dryden McKay, but Mark McKay's as well. But their goaltending itself, as you see, is outstanding. He didn't, I think it was only, he didn't play in one game this year for Minnesota State. He was incredible. Statistically, and I was able to watch him because I got a lot of work with the WCHA this year, you know, working with Ferris State and kind of following the league a little bit. There was no goaltender better. I don't see how a guy like McKay can get passed up for this award after already personally getting omitted for the hat-trick finalist for the Hobie Baker Award. I get it. He's not, a, he's not an upperclassman. He is a sophomore. But, man, he was really Really good. So, I'm like I said, that is my pick for the Mike Richter Award. The last guy for the Mike Richter Award will also help us carry into the Hobie Baker Award nominees, the hat-trick finalists, because this guy is nominated for both awards, the Mike Richter and the Hobie Baker Award. Jeremy Swayman, out of Maine, goaltender for the Black Bears, is a junior netminder, a fourth-round pick from the Boston Bruins back in the 2017 draft, drafted 111th overall, went 18-11-5 this year. And you look at that, and you're like, wow, 18-11-5? That's no much better than Strauss man. And I tell you, listener that listen to the show every week, you're right. He has a 207 goals against average, not necessarily the highest in the league, but a 9 9 save percentage, which is second behind Dryden McKay with three shutouts. Now you're like, okay, 207, 939, that's great and all. Eighteen eleven and 5, you know, Maine finished 4th in the Hockey East. What makes him a viable candidate to win not just the Mike Richter Award, but the Holy Baker Award? Let me give you a number. 1,099. Now what is that number? No, that is not the number that you can win on FanDuel. That is not a number that, you know, that is not his, that is not his SAT score. Let's say that right now. 1099 is the number of saves that Jeremy Swayman made this year for the Maine Black Bears. First in the NCAA, if you could believe it, the man that finished second in saves this year was the University of Vermont's Stefano Leces, who made 973 saves. If you're doing the math, folks, that is a 126 save differential between the first the goaltender that finished first in saves, and the goaltender that finished second. Swayman, who played in every game for Maine this year, also finished second in minutes played, playing over a thousand minutes. He averaged, I think if I'm not mistaken, he dang near averaged, I believe, half a save, like a save every two minutes. I think that was the the math I was able to came up with. I didn't exactly do the official math because then you have to do like the time and try to convert that to a fraction and didn't even bother with that before today's show. But regardless, this man put in a workload and a half. Now, why I think he has a chance to win the Hobie Baker, but not the Mike Richter, is because, like I said, Dryden McKay's numbers were so much better over the season. And yes, literally the only reason why Maine was anywhere near successful and finished with a possible chance to finish with home ice advantage, heading into the Hockey East Tournament, is because of Jeremy Swayman. That's why He's arguably the most valuable player in the NCAA. He is a very solid goaltender. He has shown over the last couple of seasons that he's developed into a very mature goaltender at the collegiate level. That's why Boston took him back in 2017. Yes, Tuukka Rask is getting older, as is a goaltender like Jaroslav Halak. And I'm sure Boston Bruins is looking at him right now as a possible goaltender. To look for in the future. Now, yes, I do say that after what I said earlier about Zane McIntyre, but if you give him some time, Jeremy Swayman may be wearing a Boston Bruins sweater in the next half decade or so, give or take. I'm just saying, if he's able to put in this kind of workload and this kind of success with an underachieving main team, put him on a Boston Bruins team. That's if they can keep the formula they have now. They're going to be good in five years give them a nice young goaltender to ride for another, what, 10 years? So how long have they been with Tuka Rask, give or take that? I'm just saying, Boston's put them in a good spot with their goaltending situation by bringing in a guy like Jeremy Swayman. Now, will he be the guy that wins the Hobie Baker Award? If you're looking at the most valuable player, yes. Now, if you're talking about some of the players that are the best in the country, that's going to be tough. Now, yes, I know when we talked about it with Harrison Watt that there should be no way Mark McKayle isn't in the final three. Unfortunately, he was omitted. The other two guys that were also, but that were, but in the final for the hat trick finalist were Scott Perunovic and Jordan Kawaguchi. Perunovic, a defenseman out of Minnesota Duluth, representing the National Collegiate Hockey Conference, was a very talented defenseman, and he's been a guy over the last few years has continued to be a prolific playmaker from the blue line. He had five. He had two separate five-game point streaks this season, including a six-game point streak that went from November, that was in late November to early December, where he put up 14 total points. All of them were assists. And just watch him in a game, and it's funny to see how he's able to control the play. And he's a guy that's very poignant on the power play. 22 of his 40 points this year came with the man advantage. Excuse me which was tied for the most points in the NCAA power play points. That is he had 12 multi-point games this season, 10 game winning assists. Now I know that sounds kind of like a dumb stat, but that just shows that he's been entrusted by the bulldog staff, that he's a guy that can be out there in the big moments. He was drafted by the St. Louis blues back in 2017. He finished tied for eighth in the country in points with Arizona States, James Sanchez, did finish second, though, in defensemen scoring behind David Ference, another guy, Boston University's David said that is, another guy that was nominated in the Final Ten Hobie Baker Award finalists. Very talented. He's very, very stocky, but very skilled as well. Be interesting to see if he gets the call. He is trying to be the ninth defenseman to ever win the award, Hobie Baker Award, and the sixth Minnesota Duluth Bulldog to win it. And if he does get the Hobie Baker Award on Saturday. It'll mark only the second time in the history of the award since 1981 that defensemen have won it in back-to-back years. Cale McCarr obviously winning it last year with the University of Massachusetts. Back in 83 and 84, Mark Fusco and former Minnesota Duluth Bulldog Tom Curvers won the award back-to-back. That is the only time defensemen ever won it in back-to-back years. The other guy, representing the NCHC as well, Jordan Kawaguchi, out of North Dakota. Talking about Ralph Engelstad Arena, a guy that has made his living there the last few years and having a career year this year by far, is Kawaguchi. He's an undrafted player. the only of the three nominees this year that is undrafted. Came out of the British Columbia Hockey League with the Chilliwack Chiefs, uh, most notably. Really showed his offensive prowess this season with the Fighting Hawks. I have to keep saying Fighting Hawks or else I'm going to say Fighting sue, and I don't want that to completely just derail this show. But he had a career-best 45 points in 33 games this year, Finished second, finishing second in points and third in points per game. He averaged 1.36 points a night. Only Jack Dugan from Providence had more points this season in the NCAA. And while Kawaguchi led the NCHC in points, he finished sixth in the conference in goals with 15 and second in assists behind Scott Perunovic with 30. He had a plus-minus of plus 21 this year, which was third in the NCHC. He also finished third, or excuse me, tied for third with a plus 21. He also finished third in the National Collegiate Hockey Conference in game-winning goals with six. He had a six-game point streak that went from the late October to mid-November where he scored 11 points in that time span, also had an eight-game point streak that went deep into the regular season in late February, where he had 15 points in an eight-game span. Now, if Kawaguchi wins it, he would only become the third North Dakota player to win the award. The other two are Ryan Duncan and Tony Harkak, who Duncan won it in 2007, Harkak won it in 1987, and Kawaguchi also looks to become the first winner from British Columbia to win the award since Jason Krog. Back in 1999, going back quickly to our netminder, Swayman, he wants to be the first goaltender to win the award since Ryan Miller won the award with Michigan State back in 2001, who at that time, Ryan Miller, was a junior, so maybe history likes to repeat itself there. Swayman will also become only the third goaltender to win the award, with the exception of Miller and Rob Stauber, who won it back with the University of Minnesota Golden Gophers. Back in 1988. So, and also swam, by the way, the first goaltender to be nominated for the Hobie Baker since Thatcher Demko was nominated back in 2016, the year he won the Mike Richter Award. And I'm looking at my hockey writer's article I posted for it. And my good buddy, Lucas Main, saying how Jack Dugan got snubbed. And you're right, Dugan. A lot of players got snubbed. Talked about Michaelias and David Ferentz, who actually led defensemen in points. John Leonard of UMass, I'm pretty sure a few people could give him some praise. Morgan Barron, the leading scorer for Cornell University, he got omitted as well. Jason Cotton was also another player from Sacred Heart that was in the final 10 nominees for the award, all being omitted. So, obviously, a lot of good players talk about. The awards will be announced, the award winners at least, will be announced on Saturday, which it would have been on Friday. Obviously, because Frozen Four weekend, they have the semifinals on Thursday, awards on Friday, games on Saturday. Well, this year, they're going to do things just a little differently. They're going to put it on Saturday, which is fine. You know, Saturday night, that's cool. Here is the problem. Here's my problem, folks. Is the fact that it's on Saturday night at 11 o'clock Eastern time, 10 o'clock Central time. For all you folks a little west of here. It'll be announced on SportsCenter. Hey, guys. Isn't that kind of cool? The 40th year of the Hobie Baker Award will be announced on SportsCenter at 11 o'clock. Now, folks, I I took a quick second of myself. By the way, along with the Mike Richter and Hobie Baker Awards, the Hockey Humanitarian Award, the All-American Teams, the Tim Taylor Award, and the Derek Hines Award will also be awarded at this time. Now, my question is this, because I did my research. Why couldn't the award ceremony be put, I don't say a ceremony, but the announcements. You could do a show on it, a nice little half-hour little show to announce these awards. You couldn't do that at like 7 or 8 o'clock, you know? I'm just saying, because, I mean, if you, I mean, heck, you could even put it on ESPNU if you want to. I know that you'd have to, you know, you'd have to kind of toss off to the side a classic battle between number six LSU number nine Texas football replay at 630. You'd have to get rid of that to put this on here. Because you know, ESPNU is the college station of the ESPN family of networks. So you I'm sure you couldn't put it on there. You couldn't put it on ESPN 2, which at that time, if I'm looking at my numbers right, ESPN 2 would have, I think, some, oh right, it would have, I believe that's some esports. No, excuse me, that's on ESPN. NBA 2K Players Tournament. You'd have to get rid of that in order to put in an actual award ceremony for the one time you cover college hockey. One time of the year you cover college hockey. You couldn't admit to do anything for that. You couldn't get rid of any time during the day of your E60 replays. You can't do that. You can't do anything on... Oh my gosh, I forgot ESPN2. That's got all the Little League World Series replays because that's not going to be played this year. So why wouldn't we just show those games instead of actually giving the awards for the best in college hockey, its own show. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Let's just put on SportsCenter with John Butchagross and have him give a little five-minute spiel, where they just throw the little names on the ticker at the bottom of your screen so then you can just see them and like, oh, look, this person won that award. That's cool. And let's move on to more pointless basketball talk here on SportsCenter. Because that makes sense. Let's just completely not give it the respect it deserves, I would be okay if they just put on ESPN+. Plus Because at least then you can make it a very hockey-centric show and do it that way. Because that only makes sense. Because, I'm sorry, guys, I am not okay with just, hey, at the top of the hour, we're going to talk about the college hockey awards, give them the Holy Baker Award, and do it in five minutes. That's stupid. At least, you know, you could, hey, let's call and do an interview with... The winner of the Hobie Baker Award. The winner of the Mike Richter Award. Winner of whatever awards. The best coach in college hockey. The American Hockey Coach Association Coach of the Year. You could do that. You could fill a half hour time slot doing that. And I'm sure with the very absent amount of live sports right now, I'm sure you could cut out a half hour of your time slot on, heck, ESPNU. You could do that for college hockey. For the one stinking time you cover it. It would only make sense to, you know, to actually give the players they deserve because, shoot, Heisman Trophies, it's five-hour stinking regatta. WrestleMania is not even as long as the Hobie Baker Award ceremony. Tell me any different. I'm serious. This is just shocking that ESPN, the worldwide leader in sports, just completely decides to just throw it off to the side Give it its little shmeel. Hey, this is the best player in the world. Woo! It's a joke. It is an absolute joke. I'm sorry. I get it. Actually, no. No, I don't get it. I don't get it at all. I was going to say, I know there's some other sports that are more important. There's a reason why they don't show games during the regular season because they have to talk about basketball the entire time. No, I don't get it anymore. I don't. I'm sorry. When the Big Ten Network and... I don't even know. Like Fox Sports North are like the only two things you could actually go to network television that actually covers college hockey. Excuse me, NESN, New England Sports Network. I forgot about them. I apologize. But are those are the three networks that actually give an actual you know what about college hockey? Three sub, not even national networks. Well, Big Ten is technically national. I get that, but like. Big Ten and Fox Sports North are divisions of Fox Sports as a whole. I, I'm not sure. I don't think CBS Sports, did they do hockey this year, CBS Sports Network? I can't remember if they did or not. I don't think they did. At least they may have done a few games. But they just, they, let, they treat it the same way they do NBC Sports does hockey. On Friday nights, they do one game and they don't do anything else the rest of the week. That's my problem. I have a problem with the fact that they just completely ignore it that the ESPN completely ignores college hockey for 11 months out of the year, and then for two weeks, they actually care. They actually, oh, let's actually put people on. It's shocking and embarrassing to the game that, I get it, ESPN has a deal with the NCAA to provide all the coverage for the national championships, but the least they could do is broadcast games during the regular, shoot, they do softball. They have field hockey. And I get it, yes. Oh, but on ESPN+, Plus you have ECAC hockey. Yes, because that league, ECAC, has a specific deal with ESPN+. Plus. And yes, it gives that league a very, very good amount of publicity because, of course, the Ivy League has a deal with ESPN as well. So that's why the deal kind of worked out very easily. The rest of the leagues, the exception of a few national games, or a few TV games, are on flowhockey.net. And I'll tell you, it's actually almost better covered. I mean, it's more... For some of it, it's nice because you get to hear the local, the hometown broadcasters, which is very nice because there's a lot of great guys in the world. I know Alabama Huntsville puts on a good, they have a really good play-by-play guy. Uh, of course, Harrison, one of the best in the WCHA, Michigan Tech's got a really great guy as well, just to name a few. And of course, you have Scott Moore and Al Randall with Michigan State and Michigan, respectively. But my thing is, is that the worldwide leader in sports couldn't do just a little bit more for college hockey, more than just five minutes on their nightly sports center, which has to cover nothing at all. They have nothing else to do. I don't know. I just, I don't know why you can't put a special broadcast together for this, especially at this time, the way everything's going around. You could do it, but that's just me. And that's my story. and I'm sticking to it. I, I don't I'll never understand it. And I never will probably work for ESPN, so I can say this with wholeheartedly and not giving a crap because Stoss Hall is not going to call me back. I'm not going to worry about it at all. So, regardless, that's probably a good way to wrap up this show. Another Tyler Kuhl rant. Vintage Tyler, as Michael Cole would say on WWE programming, if I were ever to get on that. But that'll never happen either. So, nonetheless, thank you all very much for listening to this week's episode. Get it involved with today's episode. Tweet us at The QL Podcast. Use the hashtag The QL Podcast and hashtag TKP. Tell us who you think is going to win the Holy Baker Award. Who's going to win the Mike Richter Award? Should the NHL continue? I know I ask it all the time, but tell us because clearly they want to. But do you, the fan, think it's right? And also, what movies are you watching? Are you guys James Bond movies too? Are you guys watching those too? Or are you guys binge watching shows? If you haven't watched Tiger King yet? Watch it. Feel better about yourself. Thank you once again, folks. I am Tyler Fuel, saying thanking you for listening to this episode of the Fuel Podcast. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. You know what'd be a better idea than this? Any or this NBA 2K tournament, these players tournament? Let's actually get actual guys that play video games. You know, like Mitch Marner going up against Zach Hyman. You know, if you really want to determine a Stanley Cup champion and a safe way to do it, why not put the best of the NHLs what they have to offer? Like, take, like, the best video game, or at least NHL player on each team, have them represent their team, and have them go head-to-head in a massive tournament. I'm just saying. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be a great idea? See Mitch Marner go up against um uh uh duh. who else plays video games in the league